We're in um, Matthew 5, continuing through the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a little bit of a transition tonight, moving from the Beatitudes into more of an unpacking now of those Beatitudes. You know, the first um, verses 3 through 11 focus on kingdom people's character. We've talked about that, that Jesus said the people here in these first few verses, this is what people who are um, in the kingdom look like. All right? Beginning tonight, we move into verse 13 and following. And we're going to be looking at what people in the kingdom do people do because of the character in them. Okay, so uh, unpacking the Sermon on the Mount. The first part has been has been a um, um, definition, if you will, of kingdom people. And then beginning with verse 13, it's going to be more action. It's going to be uh, functional uh, in its approach. What do you do because you're a person of the kingdom of God? Um, and as we look at tonight's section, we're looking at verses 13 through 16 in particular. So I want to read those verses, and then we'll try to unpack them a little bit and see what we can learn. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, um, you know, Andrew Murray uh, some of you may know who that is. He's written several books, particularly on prayer. Uh, I believe Surrender. I can't remember names. Um, but anyway, Andrew Murray was one of the... Um, he's characterized as a man that really uh, exemplified holiness in the way that he lived his life. And um, he had great influence, which is what this is talking about from 13 on. Kingdom people have influence. If we're going to sum up 13 through 16, that's what it's about. Salt and light's talking about influence. What kind of influence do we have, do you have, in the world? You know, outside the walls of this building. And uh, Andrew Murray was a guy that, that had incredible influence in the people that he encountered, particularly with his family. Particularly with his family. He had... Um, Five of six sons became ministers of the gospel. Four daughters became wives of ministers. Ten grandsons became ministers of the gospel. And 13 grandchildren became missionaries. That's that's quite a legacy, isn't it? Uh, You know, that's not something that you set out to just do. That's not something you set out to cause to happen. That's something that happens because of what they've seen in you. And, and it's had an impact. 
many of us could probably go back through the family tree and we may find some people here and there or someone here and there that you know has followed the lord in in uh, the gospel ministry or been a missionary and um and it's it's something that family most of the family can celebrate and appreciate to a certain degree but you think about five of six sons and four daughters and 10 grandsons and 13 grandchildren all in the ministry. That's just two generations, right? Uh, that's a pretty incredible legacy to leave. That's the essence of kingdom influence. Kingdom influence. Each of us uh, has experienced the influence of others. Some, who are some of the people that, ex that uh, have influenced you in your life? You don't have to give names, but who were they? I mean, what 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 role did they play in your life? Mm. Mother, father, okay. Mentor, mentor, um, siblings, husband, coach, a coach, a teacher, boss. a principal, a boss. You know, neighbor, neighbor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all the work. Somebody you work with. Uh, there are always people that are in our lives, and sometimes we notice them. You know, we, we have an awareness of what's going on at the time. Sometimes we don't know till later. A lot of times coming through school, you don't appreciate the influence that maybe teachers had in your life until later when you're looking back, right? And, and you start recognizing those things. Same thing with parenting. You know, as you're coming through and your parents are trying to instruct you and teach you, most of us, because of our rebellious nature, we kind of resist it, don't we? Or we try to resist it. And we resent, you know, what our parents are maybe seeking to do or trying to do. And then later on, when you have your own kids, all of a sudden you start hearing echoes of your parents in yourself, you know. The same things they said to you, you hear coming out of your mouth, right? And you realize, boy, they zapped me with the curse. You know, I've become my mom. I've become my dad. Well, it's, it's influence. Some of, sometimes it's negative. Hopefully, a lot of times it's positive. But what I found, the disturbing thing I found with my children, that I noticed all the negative traits. They got all my negative traits, you know, not the positive ones. Um, that You hear those things that make you want to cringe, you know, and you go, I know where that came from. Uh, so it's a part of our uh, edification, sanctification process that God, I think, exposes us to those things. So teachers, coaches, principals, neighbors, church leaders, pastors, all these kinds of people provide influence in our lives. The question, the question is always, what kind of influence do we have? You know, what kind of influence do we have? And that's a fair question. And I think at the heart of this passage, that's the question that, you know, needs to serve as the context for unpacking this. Uh Matthew 5, 13 through 16 talks about the influence of God's people on the world. Let's look up uh, a few verses here. Aaron, how about looking up John 17, verse 15 and 16 and 18. 15, 16, and 18. Sam, 1 John 2, 15. 1 John 2, 15. You have it? And 18, yep. All right. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer, okay? 
do not necessarily take them out of the world, but they keep them from leaving them. They are not of the world, that is, I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth, that as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Okay, so what's, Jesus is praying and he's acknowledging the time that he spent with the disciples. And he's praying for them and essentially he's talking about the time he spent with them and casting influence. He has taught them, he has demonstrated um, kingdom life to them and he's getting ready to leave. And so he's praying that, that this take hold, that this take root, that it continue to flourish and produce fruit in and through their lives, right? That it be replicated, not only in them, but through them to others. 1 John 2.15 um, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in it. Okay. So God's people, kingdom people, are not to reflect the world, but who? Christ. That's right. We, we reflect, we become a mirror in this world reflecting the glory of Christ the identity of Christ not the world so if we're in love with the world we're going to reflect that right people will see that um, we should want we should desire it is God's plan and purpose I think for when people look at you when people see you encounter you in life wherever it may be that they recognize Christ in you before they actually recognize you does that make sense that should be all of our prayers for ourselves. You know? God, I want, I desire that people will not see me, but that they will recognize you in me before they recognize me. That should be the kind of legacy and influence we want to have on others around us. We're here to display God's glory. <clears throat> so... There are uh, three or four things that I want us to draw out of these verses in particular tonight. The first one is, there's a reality about this world that we need to uh, address. And that reality is that this world is a place of corruption and a place of darkness. How do we know that? What's that got to do with this verse? Well, he says that we are salt and light, that we're here for a reason, that he's made us this for a reason. So he's speaking to corruption and darkness that are part of this broken world. Okay? The world has fallen. The world is no longer as God made it to be. It's not what it's going to be in the future, but this current time, it's characterized by corruption and by darkness. Salt and light are remedies, if we can use that word, or uh, counteractants to, to what, this, what characterizes this world. G. Campbell Morgan said it this way. He said that Jesus, looking out over the multitudes of His day, saw the corruption, the disintegration of life at every point, its breakup, its spoilation, and because of his love for the multitudes, he knew the thing that they needed most was salt in order that the corruption should be arrested or stopped. 
He saw them also wrapped in gloom, sitting in darkness, groping amid mists and fogs. He knew that they needed above everything else light. So the world is full of corruption. It's full of darkness. Jesus said, you, kingdom people, are salt and light for what ails the world. Right? 2 Timothy 3.13. Let me see what that says. Anybody have it memorized? Just checking. 2 Timothy. I've got a live one. While evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You're in First Timothy. Yeah. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's verse twelve. Verse thirteen. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continuing what you have learned, he says. Many people believe that that we're improving, that we're on an upward trajectory, right? You get that, right? That's not happening, is it? I mean, but we're continually being led to believe that that's what's taking place, that we're evolving. I mean, that's the whole idea behind evolutionary theory, right? Is that, you know, we're moving toward a perfection, a standard that's better than, than it currently is. But what we see actually playing out is what? The opposite. We see what we call devolution. It's devolving. It's disintegrating. And that's what G. Campbell Morgan's talking about. Jesus saw, even in his day, that the world was, was breaking down. The relationships are breaking down. But we're seeing it. It's almost like you know we've hit something in the last uh, 10 or 15 or 20 years where it's just kind of gone into warp drive, hasn't it? Um, or at least we might say it's all out of the closet and into the open spaces now. So we've always been moving in this direction, but now it's just readily apparent. Maybe it's because the world seems to shrink with the technology and stuff. We can see uh, all these things around the world um, quickly. Uh, it doesn't take any time. Um, but if people believe that man is improving, they're truly deceived, right? They would be deceived. John MacArthur said that man has increased in scientific, medical, historical, educational, psychological, and technological knowledge to an astounding degree. But he has not changed his own basic nature. And he has not improved society. Man's knowledge has greatly improved, but his morals have progressively degenerated. His confidence has increased, but his peace of mind has diminished. His accomplishments have increased, but his sense of purpose and meaning have all but disappeared. Instead of improving the moral and spiritual quality of his life, man's discoveries and accomplishments have simply provided ways for him to express and promote his depravity faster and more destructively. Modern man has simply invented more ways to corrupt and destroy himself. Romans chapter 1 gives us the really, really bad news. For anybody thinking that we're moving on an upward trajectory, we see what God says about it all. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So they are without excuse. He says, ignorance of God is not an excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves. What do you think it means when it says that God gave them up? Sorry? Okay. God gave them up. He let them have what they wanted. That's right. You know, we have a saying says, be careful what you, what you wish for, right? Well, man, man has wanted, he wanted, he, he's on this path of rebellion against God. He wants to do his own thing and God says, okay, go do your own thing. See how that works out for you. It's not, it's not going to be good. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, mal maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I know you look at that and you go, okay, that's got to be, uh, you know, that's got to be a certain segment, right, of, of, of the population. That's not everybody. That's right. That's somebody else. It's not me. I don't know if you follow any of these things or not, but, uh, you know, there's a guy that is a, um, has been a professional football player, and uh, he played, uh, he's a wide receiver. He played for the Pittsburgh Steelers for several years. He's, he's been an all-pro. He's been an all-star. And... Um, but he got disgusted with the with the organization. He decided he wanted out, and so they they traded him, or they they traded him to uh, Oakland, the Oakland Raiders. So he goes out there. They sign him to a thirty million dollar contract, thirty million dollars for two years to play football. Thirty million dollars for two years to play football. Thirty million dollars for two years to play football. Okay. Now he he immediately starts pressing the envelope, pushing the envelope with things out there. He has some reasons he can't practice. He has this. He starts griping about helmets and things of that nature. And so he starts missing meetings, starts missing practices. And so the team says, you know what? When you don't show up for meetings, we have to fine you. And so these are not $100 speeding ticket fines. These are you know $25,000 fines for not showing up because you're making $30 million, right? So it has to hurt. So he gets angry about that. And eventually, they basically start threatening to cut him from the team, which means he's going to lose that money. That's the only way he can lose it. If he makes it to the first day of the season and is on the roster, 
He gets the money, guaranteed. It's all guaranteed, okay? But he can't allow himself to do that. He's so full of himself that he presses that envelope until they cut him. They, they, they let him go. They just let him walk. So they lost a million dollars that they signed him to. They gave him a bonus when they signed him. So a million dollars they lost, but they saved $29 million. He immediately goes and signs with another team. They're going to pay him $15 million for one year. Okay? He makes it through one game. One game, and he's got accusations of women who say he's raped them, who say he's, you know, he's done all sorts of things. He's threatened them with text messages and things like that. And so his second team, within two weeks, cuts him, okay? And now the $9 million that he's supposed to get in pledged bonus money is now going to have to be litigated if he sees a dime of it. What is wrong with that thinking that someone would do that? I mean, if you're on the, hit, uh, on the hitch for, tw- for $29, $30 million, and your employer says you've got to show up for a meeting, What's it going to take for you to miss that meeting? Death? You know? But here's someone who, who has been given over. You know, he, he's got this mindset of, I want this. I want my independence. I'm smarter than everybody. I can have things my way, blah, blah, blah. And so they've given him what he wants, and now he's out of the league. I, I just read this week where he's enrolled back in his former college. He's going to pursue another degree or something. So... He went from an all-star pro making $30 million over two years to being unemployed and going back to school to finish a degree. The problem is they start that when they're like six years old. This is true. But this is the, this is the world that we have. This is the pride, of vanity of man. Okay? And that's what Romans 1 is talking about that is God says, you want, you want to be this big, tough, bravado, you know, re- rebellious person, God says, be careful what you wish for, I'll give it to you. And there's coming a day, the scripture says, where if you persist in that, where God will ultimately give you up for eternity. You say, I don't want to hear the word of God. I don't want, I don't want to be around God. There's coming a time where God says, okay, have it your way. But you don't know how bad that's going to be, right? Until it's too late. So, corruption and darkness. That's the reality of the world we live in. The second thing that I think we find in these, uh, in these verses is that Christ's plan for His people in this world is to be salt and light. Salt and light. What's the significance of being salt and light? The church cannot accept the world's self-centeredness, immorality, amorality, materialism, etc., we have a challenge to engage in the ministry of reconciliation. Okay? Not to stand on the sidelines and applaud and say, oh, well, he got what he deserved. Right? That's, that's not what God's made us to be. That's not what kingdom people are. Uh, we can't go into hiding. We don't withdraw from the world and isolate ourselves and say, ooh, we're scared of what's going on out there in the world. You know, we're afraid we're going to get corrupted. That's not what God has for us either. Jesus said you're salt and light. Salt and light are... They're the remedy. They're the cure. They're the, they're the opposite of corruption and darkness. Okay? But they're, no, they're of no good. They're no good apart from those things. 
you know, if, if you turn on a flashlight in here in this room right now, it's going to do you very little good, isn't it? Why? Because we already have light in here. But if it were dark, you turn the light off, turn it on, makes a big difference, right? So you need light in the darkness. You need salt in the midst of corruption. Salt in the midst of that which is pure has very little, if any, impact. There's no contrast. Exactly. So, Christ's plan for people in His world, His kingdom people, is to be salt and light. We must be in the world. We can't be of the world. But we must be in the world. Being salt and light in the world. People who provide a faithful presence in the world. What, is it, what do you think it means to be a faithful presence? I, there's a lot of Christian philosophy these days that says that our job is to change the world. Can we? That's right. We, we can't. In fact, Scripture is pretty clear that the state of the world is going to continue to get progressively worse until finally God brings the new creation to full light. At the, at the end of this, this historical stretch that we're in, right? So, but we don't give up on the world and just pack it in and all sit in the crowded room here inside the steepled house and say, we're going to avoid all that's going on out there. We can't change it. So what do we do? There's a, there's a lot of world out there. And we can change one bite at a time, the way you eat an elephant. Yeah. Well, better than even using this word, is that I would say our role is yeah. to be a faithful presence in the world. A faithful presence means that we are salt and light, that we're willing to be salt and light in a corrupt and dark world. Not hide from it, not blend in and be like it, but to be a faithful presence, to be clearly of God, be God's people, and be God's people in the midst, of, even though it's uncomfortable, even though you know there's there's um, pushback or it's not popular. We should be people who are influenced, not influenced, should not be people who are influenced by the world's corruption and darkness but be a faithful presence for purity and righteousness in this dark and corrupt world. The plan to slow down the corruption and oppose the darkness, that's what salt and light does. Salt slows down the deterioration, the ruination, the corruption. You know, if you put, um, how many of you had, I'm going to date some of you here. Did you grow up with a, with a smokehouse? Anybody grew up with a smokehouse? A couple of farm boys over here did. I can remember a smokehouse at my granddaddy's place. And you know, they hung, you, didn't have, you didn't have cooler, you didn't have a refrigerator, you didn't have a freezer. So the milk or things like that that came, that were, the cows were milked, and in order to keep the milk cool, it went to the spring house, okay? That's where the, set in the water, you know, to keep it cool. And the meat was salted. You had salt. You had a crust of salt all over that meat 
to protect it from corruption. And it would hang in the smokehouse. Ham, you know, do beef the same way. Mostly, it was Mostly hogs, ham. wasn't it? Mostly yeah. Ham's pork. Ham's pork. You canned sausage and things of that nature, but the ham, they strung it up and it, it had a, a thick crust of salt all over it. So no varmint's going to bother it because it's too salty, right? So it, it, was, a, it was a protection. And, and it slows the corruption completely. So that's what he's saying, is that we as believers have that responsibility that by being a faithful presence in this world, we can retard corruption. We can. We might not change it. We might not reverse it. We can't change it into incorruption, but we can retard it. And we've seen that evidenced at various times in our world, in our culture. We can go back and look at things like the Great Awakening here in, the, in, uh, in America. Uh, we had two of them. The first one was probably the most prolific, most profound, uh, where you know a great many people, a great portion of the population in New England came to Christ during that time. And so it, it really had an impact of slowing dramatically the corruption of, of the culture. What we've seen in recent years, when we talk about how things have kind of spiraled out of control maybe in our country, or we think it has, is that we've seen Christians kind of stop being a faithful presence, right? We've allowed things to go unchallenged. We've allowed uh, society to kind of run its course. And so it's, it's kind of exploded, come into full bloom, the, the rebellion, the corruption uh, in society. Let's see. Um, so one side is silent, the other is verbal. You know, when you think about salt, salt is kind of the negative side. It, it stops or slows down the corruption, but light projects into it. So light's more of a positive side. That's more of the gospel going forth and, and actually bringing light to bear upon what is dark, you know, turning, transforming uh, a dark heart into a righteous heart, for instance. Salt has always been seen as valuable, has great value. Why? Do you know Roman soldiers used to get paid by, with salt? That's, why, that's where we get our um, expression, uh, worth his weight in salt or not worth his salt. I mean, it was so valuable because of its, of its uh, um, ability to sustain something like meat. Also because it adds flavor. It enhances flavor by using it to season meat, things of that nature. Uh, it's also a, um, uh, has a property that brings about healing, right? If you have an open wound and you put salt on it, it's going to sting, but what's it going to do? It's kind of going to facilitate some of that healing, right? It's going to clean the impurities what else anything else you're missing the big one preserves meat creates thirst doesn't it creates thirst you give you, some of you farm boys, why do you put a salt block out for the cattle? 
They make them drink water. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't know. I'm just asking. I'm pretty ignorant on this. I did no research. But why? Why is that important? Does that, does that help with like milk making the milk and things? Yeah. So a cow cow is driven to drink water. Same thing with with us as salt in the culture, creating thirst for what? For the living water. You know, for the gospel. When when people see, you know, they they're not. People aren't moved or stirred or the thirst is not created when we preach at people or we even talk at people about salvation. What and and it doesn't do them any good if they see everything's going all swimmingly in your life and you're talking all these things because they're thinking, well, yeah, that's easy because your life's going great. You know, you can talk about having faith in God because you have a good job and lots of money coming in and you don't you're not hungry. So someone who's on the other end of that doesn't see that. But when that's why suffering is such an important part of the Christian experience and why the Bible talks about it so much. And it's one of the most undervalued things that we talk about in our churches in America today. Is that because through the suffering, when we remain faithful to Christ, it stands out. You know, that's the light. That's the salt in the community, your your neighbors, the people you work with, people in your family that may not be able to appreciate what the gospel is, but when they see you walking through difficult things that everyone recognizes are difficult, okay, and they see you going through with peace and with contentment and with trust in God, faith in God, that no matter how bad it's gotten, you continue to put one foot in front of the other, trust in God, and they go, how does anybody do that? Well, you say... Well, I can't do that. But Christ in me enables me to do that. You know? So that's why it's so important. That's why Paul was so... Uh, Paul's legacy, Paul's resume in, uh, as an apostle was one that was filled with suffering. Read Second Corinthians chapter 11 sometime. Beatings, rejection, stoning. I mean, all these things happen. We can look at Paul through a glamorized glass sometimes, can't we? Well, he was a great apostle. He was a smart guy. He preached to all these people that came to Christ. And man, he was bold as a lion and everything. But we often forget what Paul encountered because of his commitment to the gospel. The beatings and the sufferings and the rejection and the loneliness and all that stuff that came with it. But because he stayed faithful through all of those things, Christ using him... He was, he was a lighthouse, you know, where the light of Christ was drawing people, creating thirst uh, in, in a dry and barren world. That's what God uses more than anything else in our lives. So when you have difficulties come into your life, you know, most of us, our first response is to say, oh, Lord, take it away, take it away. And that's a natural thing, right? But we should be praying Lord, I don't like this much. It doesn't feel very good. But you've promised that all these things are working together for good and that there's something that you want to do and you use me. Equip me, enable me to walk through this, empower me for this test, for this suffering, so that your light may shine through, so that I may be salt to create thirst in others. And if that's what it takes 
If that's what it takes for someone in my sphere of influence to be drawn to Christ, then why shouldn't I want that? Why shouldn't I be willing to go there? Right? Christians are to be pure. Salt represents purity. It purifies. Salt Christians are to be true to God's Word even when it's uncomfortable, when it stings those that we come into contact with. Helen Ewing was saved as a young girl in Scotland and gave her life completely to uh, the Lordship of Christ. When she died at the age of 22, it is said that all of Scotland wept. She had expected to serve God as a missionary in Europe and had become fluent in the Russian language. But she was not able to fulfill that dream. She had no obvious gifts such as speaking or writing, and she never traveled far from home. Yet by the time she died, she had won hundreds of people to Jesus Christ. Countless missionaries mourned her death because they knew that a great channel of their spiritual strength was gone. She had risen every morning at five in order to study God's Word and to pray. Her diary revealed that she regularly prayed for over 300 missionaries by name. Everywhere she went, the atmosphere was changed. If someone was telling a dirty story, he would stop it when he saw her coming. If people were complaining, they would become ashamed of it in her presence. An acquaintance reported that while she was at Glasgow University, she left the fragrance of Christ wherever she went. And everything she said and did, she was God's salt. Only lived to be 22. Light. Salt may be hidden, but light is obvious, right? What was her name? Helen Ewing. E-W-I-N-G. Salt works secretly. Light works openly. Salt works from within. Light works from without. Salt is more the indirect influence of the gospel where light is the more direct communication of the gospel. Salt works primarily through the way we live. Light is largely negative because it can retard corruption. But it cannot change corruption into incorruption. Light's more positive. It reveals what is wrong and false. It also helps produce what is righteous and true. Light and salt. Now, Jesus also talks here about when God's people fail and they become unsalty and hidden. So what does that mean? Well, in Palestine, much salt that's found along the shores of the Dead Sea has been contaminated. It gets a gypsum uh, poison in it, and so it, it can have harmful effects. It has a bad taste, and, it, and it's uh, even repulsive to a, to a certain extent. Um, it gets other minerals involved that, that contaminate it. But if somebody ends up with some of this contaminated salt in their household, they immediately throw it out. They just throw it out because it's of no value for what they're going to be using it for. So what they would do, they had to be careful. If you throw it on a field, it's going to kill whatever's growing or keep something from growing. If you throw it on a garden, obviously the same thing's going to happen. So they would just throw it on a pathway and it would just become you know, what you walked on, just like gravel for us. Uh, but it would get ground up and be on the pathway and it served that purpose fine. But that's all it was good for. Now, he's not saying here that Christians can lose their salvation. That you can become unsalty and lose your, your salvation. What he's saying is that you can lose your effectiveness. 
Salt doesn't really become unsalty, it becomes unusable because of these other minerals and things that begin to take over. <clears throat> and to lose our saltiness is not to lose salvation, but to lose our effectiveness. Light can become useless when it is hidden. You can have, you can have a light on, but if you've got it covered up adequately enough, you can't see anything, right? I mean, we, we've been in that auditorium in there with all the windows around with the sun out and pull down the shades and it's, it can be almost completely dark in there. The light's of no value if it's covered up completely. And so we Christians, when we hide the light, when we are embarrassed by the light, we're ashamed of the gospel, we have this, this role of hiding the light that Christ has in us that might impact someone else. Still lit, but it serves no purpose when it's under the bushel, Jesus says. Well, what does God want? Well, God wants, down there at the end of verse 16, we see in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Good works. What do you think that means? See your good works. It's not talking about quality necessarily. The, the connotation here is one of beauty, of attractiveness. See your good works. First Peter two first Peter two twelve says, Keep your keep your conduct before the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They may see the light. They may see the attractiveness, the goodness of Christ in you. And that may in turn draw them to Him so that they're prepared on the day of visitation, on the day of judgment. Letting our light shine before men allows them to see our good works. It allows them to see the beauty that the Lord has worked in us. To see such good works is to see Christ in us. It's not something we can create or something we can make up. But it's something that we allow Christ to do in us and through us. Okay, So we can't fabricate it. We can't fake it. But it's, it's about walking with Christ and allowing Him to fill us with His Spirit, with His presence, and overflow our lives. It's God's glorious light shining through us. It's never to bring or draw attention to ourselves. If it's drawing attention to ourselves, then it's probably based in the wrong motive. It's something that we're doing ourselves. But it always seeks to focus attention on God. Robert Murray McShane. Anybody heard that name before? <laughs> Robert Murray McShane. We're doing his reading through the, the Bible this year as a church. It's been said of Robert Murray McShane, a godly Scottish minister of the last century, that his face carried such a hallowed expression that people were known to fall on their knees and accept Jesus Christ as Savior when they looked at him. And that'd be something. Others were so attracted by the self-giving beauty and holiness of his life that they found his master irresistible. How'd you like that to be your testimony? It was also said of the French pietist Francois Fenelon 
that his communion with God was such that his face shined with divine radiance. A religious skeptic who was compelled to spend the night in an inn with Fenelon hurried away the next morning saying, if I spend another night with that man, I'll be a Christian in spite of myself. <laughs> I heard, I heard uh, an anecdote uh, along those lines about Billy Graham playing golf with, uh, with some professional golfers one day. And um, when they finished the round, one of the guys that was a part of the foursome stormed off and, and was uh, you know, really indignant about um, Billy Graham trying to drive his religion down his throat. He said, you know, I'll never hang around that guy. Don't drive his religion down my throat and everything. And so they, they asked the other two professionals that were playing with him. They said, he never mentioned religion the entire time we were playing. It never came up. Just, it was just the, the Spirit of Christ in the man that was bringing that kind of, you know, um, power and conviction, yeah, to, to their lives, to their experience together. Salt and light. It's what we've called, been called to be. That's what it means to be kingdom people in a world that's, that's unkingdom-like, that's focused on the wrong kingdom. Our role is to be Kingdom people, salt and light. Question? Comments?